Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Episode 60. Arabic, Egypt. So, when we last talked in 767, Pope Michael passed away, and a new Pope, Mina I, was elected to replace him. Now, in this very same year, another rebellion broke out, our six for those who are keeping track. The Abbasids quickly realized that exempting the Coptic converts from the Jizya, plus not taxing the Arabs, plus giving the Bashmorites a cut was not sustainable. The Jizya policy stayed set. It was to be a pillar of the Caliphate until the Ottomans to encourage Islamization. But the exemptions to the Bashmorites went away very quickly. And the land owned by the Arabs were taxed as the land owned by the Copts. In other words, very heavily under the legal category of conquered land, regardless of ownership. So, the Copts ended up paying the Kharak tax, the name given to land taxes imposed on conquered lands, and the Jizya, the religious bull tax. And the Muslims, Arabs or converts, paid just the Kharak tax, which was essentially a new innovation under the Abbasids. This caused a lot of tension, and eventually, an incident with a tax collector in a city called Sa sparked the revolt. The Bashmorites joined up with the city of Sa, and large parts of the delta just stopped paying taxes. And, in a major historical marker, it wasn't just the Christian Copts, but also settled Arabs and Coptic converts who rebelled as well. They too had grievances against the government in Fustat, and hunger was abusive tax collection overruled any religious sympathies between the Muslim administration and its Muslim citizens. And to be completely clear, when describing the situation using the words high taxes, it's a very inept way of explaining things. It wasn't a problem of inconvenience, like living in modern-day California or something. Rather, it was leaving you with nothing but the absolute minimum and good days, and taking away that absolute minimum on bad days. Dying from starvation was quite common, and with it came reports of, of cannibalism. Selling one's children as slaves was also common. And as mentioned in the history of the patriarch, 
It's just another fact of life. And this is not happening in some mountainous godforsaken part of the world where nothing grows. No, it was in a land of plenty where there was enough food for everybody. It was a healthy surplus. It was just that the farmers were literally being taxed to death. Baghdad, which was being built in the same time, was truly a splendid city, a wonder to be held. In a very few short years, it will grow from an obscure town to one of the largest, most beautiful cities in the world. So an immense amount of resources went into building the city. And Egypt, unlike militaristic Khorasan or mountainous Armenia, was one of the prime suppliers of those resources. At any rate, here we get our first rebellion by what one might call all Egyptians, Arabs, Christian Copts, and converts. Now, I don't want to really overblow that participation. The vast majority of the rebels were still Christian Copts, but it is important in the sense that the rebels were united by hunger rather than by religion, nationalism, or even language. The moment that they were no longer hungry, the motivation behind the rebellion disappeared, and it quickly collapsed. An army was dispatched from Fustad. But like most armies that went into the marshes around Bashmur, they were soundly defeated. With the military option off the table, a prolonged negotiation period ended with the rebels slowly dispersing and the governor eventually removed, either out of his failures or as part of a deal with the rebels. For his part, Al-Mansur in Baghdad concluded two things by this episode. One, the garrison in Egypt is no longer good enough to suppress the local rebellions, and he may as well stop paying them and depend on the central professional army to keep them and any rebels quiet. Next time a major rebellion would break out, a professional army would be sent to Egypt, rather than the seasonal soldiers based in Fustad. 2. He needed the revenue in Egypt to be stable. These kind of rebellions could wreak havoc if they came in the wrong time. So in a move that would eventually financially ruin Egypt, he got rich men from Baghdad to guarantee him a certain payment for a year's stint in Egypt and return for the right to collect whatever revenue they can get from the country. A variation on the old Roman practice of tax farming. As expected so, these men saw their appointment as an investment and basically did everything that they can possibly do to recoup the amount that they guaranteed to the caliph and make a tidy profit and make a tidy profit. This meant that they were happy to alienate the Arab garrison if need be and make them pay taxes as well. Coupled with that move, to decrease the tension between the local garrison and the incoming officials, Al-Mansur appointed insiders as governors, 
men who knew Egypt and were trusted by the garrison. But to avoid one of them accumulating too much power, they were appointed and removed, more or less on a yearly basis. Also, the official coming from Baghdad was in charge of the finances, including which soldiers to pay and how much. So the governor power in reality was extremely limited. Al-Mansur would do okay with that policy. He had an eye for talent, and his appointment understood that cheering the sheep is more profitable and sustainable than skinning it. But after his death, rebellions would quickly increase in intensity and frequency. We would eventually get there. But for now, I would like to go back to the newly ordained Bob Mina and his struggles in keeping the church going. His election, probably toward the conclusion of the rebellion, seems to have been without much issues. Naturally, with his transition into the office, Mina pushed out some of Pope Michael's secretaries and bureaucrats to make room for men he was personally comfortable with. One of those pushed out was a monk named Peter. He took it very personally and spent a great amount of time and resources undermining the Pope with the Muslim administration. In essence, he expected that if he were to be pushed out from the administration of the church, then at the very least he should be ordained a bishop in some corner in Egypt, a sort of a reward to his lifetime of service under Michael. Mina felt otherwise so, and he had the backing of the rest of the bishops. Even the Muslim governor, who beat her nag to no end, saw the affair as an internal issue that is best left to be handed by the Pope, and he declined to intervene. Unfortunately for everyone, Peter then decided to travel to Antioch and stir trouble there. In an ambitious scheme, he said that he was sent by the Coptic Pope to collect money as the church in Egypt was suffering under the oppressive hand of its governors. And as I mentioned last week, the Antiochian church was not in a great shape. So his scheme worked and a patriarch at the time, a certain George, not only gave him some money, but he also wrote letters of recommendations, so Peter can travel all over Syria to collect even more money from the countryside. George needed legitimacy for his internal issues, and a blessing from his Coptic counterpart would have worked wonders. So in a way, Peter's scheme found a very easy target in Syria. And that wasn't really the end of it. After making a healthy profit in Syria, Peter moved to a bigger, richer land, Iraq and the new capital of the Caliphate, Baghdad. There, somehow, he managed to get an audience with the Caliph, presumably because he looked like the Caliph's young son who died unexpectedly. Then, he sprang his meeting into a three-month stay in the palace, after which he obtained a decree 
from al-Mansur, appointing him as the patriarch over Egypt. Al-Mansur was no dummy, and he probably knew that Peter was a grifter. But he was building a highly centralized state. Appointing the religious head of a significant portion of his subjects from Baghdad made perfect sense. And Peter was the perfect tool. Now, in Egypt, the governor was in quite a bind. He was happy to keep Mina in his place and avoid unneeded disturbances. But the caliph order was clear and without much leeway for his discretion. So, Pupmina was dragged Fustad and had a friendly chat with the governor, after which, after which he was removed from his position. Further, according to the history of the patriarchs, Mina accepted his removal quite gracefully. Quote, I will carry out the law which bids me to obey the king as I would obey God. For it says, He who resists and disputes authority resists God, his Lord. A school of thought that essentially became the foundation of how the Coptic Bibisi dealt with the Muslim administration up until the Ottomans, if not later on. First Peter 2.17 Fear God and honor the king, even when the king decides to remove you and appoint his own puppet. For his part, the puppet, Peter, in a miscalculation, insisted that the removed pope be imprisoned rather than be left alone or exiled comfortably to a distant monastery, as not to dispute his authority. Additionally, he insisted that the bishops assemble to confirm him in his new position, not by the order of the governor, a secular authority, but rather by a letter written by Mina himself, summoning them without giving them a reason. The first bishop to get it, Theodore, Bishop of Masr, which is essentially Fustat and its surroundings, having witnessed the Pope removal firsthand, stuck with Mina and ended up imprisoned with him. Eventually, several bishops made it to Fustat and they were instructed to assemble in a church. There, Peter walked in with the full garments of the patriarch and a group of soldiers, intending to make his elevation as facts on the ground for the bishops. A fiery bishop then quickly ran to him, ripped off his patriarch hat, and pushed him out of the church, calling him the second Julian in the process, as in Julian the apostate. Upset, Peter ordered the soldiers with him to arrest all the bishops and send them to prison with Mina. A few days passed with an impasse on our hand. Peter, hoping that the prison would break some of the bishops and they will come to his side, and the bishops admirably presenting a united front behind Mina. 
the governor was not entirely pleased. Peter was creating unrest, and nothing good was coming out of imprisoning the bishops. To get the governor off his back, Peter told him that he can make Mina surrender some of the church gold and silver, and for his troubles, the governor can expect his cut. So, Mina was summoned to Peter, who demanded the church golden and silver vessels. But, as our primary source puts it, quote, none of the vessels of the church had been left among their possession, for the Copts had been robbed of everything time after time by the adversaries who hated them. So that bland failed quickly. Next, Peter convinced the governor that the patriarch had access to magical ancient books that teaches one how to transform substances into gold. You know, a typical medieval scam. To make him hand over the book, Peter suggested to the governor that Mina and the bishops should be enrolled in a forced labor camp that was building ships. This lasted a year, with the Pope and many of the bishops in Egypt spending the day in forced labor and the night in prison. In the meantime, with the bishops absent from their diocese, the lines between Islam and Christianity really started to blur and all kind of weird ideas were spreading. In Upper Egypt, the idea that Christ's divinity died on the cross was apparently a sink. Muslims were venerating St. Mary. Christians were naming their kids Arabic names. The Muslims were using the Coptic monsters, and the Christians started using the Hijra years. We get graves marked with names such as Muhammad, the son of John, or Abul Haris Bilal, the son of Andrew. It was a weird time, and two towns that are a few hours walk away could feel like completely two different places. One was majority Muslims using Arabic in day-to-day interactions, with Copts having Arabic names and speaking Arabic, and one was entirely Christian, speaking Coptic, and one could live and die there without hearing a single Arabic word or ever talking to a Muslim. Was plenty of places somewhere in the middle. Mina and the bishop's absence accelerated the transition that was happening. At any rate, eventually the governor and Peter had a falling out. Apparently, in a meeting, the governor slipped out and called Mina as the head of the Christians, which riled Peter up and he threatened to go back to Al-Mansur and complain. The governor responded by coming down extremely harsh on Peter. Quote, You desire to go to the prince in order to tell lies to him against me and present a report against me? He asked, Then, in a fit of anger, he gave orders that Peter should be taken away to prison and be thrown into the dungeon. 
to stay in prison ended up for three full years, where Peter was forgotten about by almost everybody. And he ended up completely broken mentally and emotionally. Even the caliph, having heard nothing from his appointment, assumed that Peter died in a way and he moved on. Eventually, after the three years, a new financial official came from Baghdad and checked out who was in prison and why. Surprisingly, he recognized Peter from his days in the caliph's palace and asked him what happened. Peter, completely unhinged at this point, went in a crazy and a long rant, after which the new official decided that it would probably be best to remove him from Fustat. So he told Peter that he should go to the caliph and tell him personally what happened. And Peter, in an effort to make his trip successful, decided to convert to Islam at this point and adopt the name Abul Khair, literally, the father of what is good. A bit ironic, as the history of the patriarch's author repeatedly calls him the son of Satan. Anyway, by the time he makes it to Baghdad, Al-Mansur was dead, and no one really cared who he is. And for his conversion, well, that kind of made him a useless tool for the new caliph. He was just another Muslim. So, he returned to Egypt, specifically his hometown, and, quote, died there a bitter death in sin and poverty. Bob Mina, for his part, also died while Abul Khair was on his trip to Baghdad, never truly seeing the end of the man who tormented him. Seven years he endured his office, with a rebellion to start, prison and forced labor in the middle, and his own version of Judas being released from prison and angling for revenge by the end. Pope Mina's reign was, as his biography puts it, quote, full of misery and trouble. 775 was a new year so. A new caliph was in Baghdad, and the bishop assembled in Alexandria to become a new patriarch. Things could turn around, especially as the new patriarch started his reign with what seemed like divine intervention and was by far the best man for the job in those trying time. You see, the largest income source for the Coptic church at this point was the shrine of San Mina in the desert between modern Cairo and Alexandria. Pilgrims from all over Egypt and even outside of Egypt traveled there. Its distinct healing oil with the engraving of the saint on it surrounded by two camels was found as far away as in Europe. In charge of that shrine was a brilliant priest named John, and he functioned not only as the administrative head of the tribe, 
but more like a CFO for the patriarchy. As he brought in the largest chunk of the revenue in the bishop's assembly in Alexandria. Initially, he was not one of the candidates, and the bishops were not able to come to an agreement. So, to avoid a deadlock, they came up with quite a creative solution. Basically, they put the names of the candidates in a hat, prayed about it, and then had a child pick a random name from the hat, who then everybody would agree to ordain as the patriarch. A practice that after several evolutions survives to this day. At this point, one of the deacons in Alexandria told the bishops that if they were going to do that, that they may as well put John's name in the hat. They did. And to their surprise, his name was picked not only the first time, but three times in a row, which did not leave much room for discussion. And John was ordained as the 48th Patriarch of Alexandria. Now, before getting to John and his 24 years of excellent administration, I would like to end this episode catching us up on what was happening in Baghdad and a transition in power over there. Al-Mansur had spent 21 years as a caliph and an old but name built the Abbasid dynasty and what many considers to be the golden age of the caliphate. In his capital, Baghdad, he spent the tremendous resources building up a wonder of the world, not just building-wise, but a cultural and a religious center with no rival. Islamic literature, both theological and secular, flourished. Syrian scholars, many of whom were still Christians, moved to Baghdad and systemically translated much of the Greek works of knowledge to Arabic. Persian court protocols and financial systems dominated the new regime, transforming the caliph into a Persian shah like figure, based in a massive palace helped by a massive centralized bureaucracy. When he died, Al-Mansur had successfully eliminated every single rival to his son, including his uncle and his nephew. His son, who adopted the name Al-Mahdi, inherited a peaceful empire where its treasury contained a vast sum of 14 million gold dinars, and if we believe the Islamic sources, more than 600 million dirhams, a silver coin that was valued at one-tenth to one-twentieth of a dinar, a sum that would make the caliph one of the richest men ever to live. Al-Mahdi's reign, was more or less a continuation of his father's reign, and he relied on the same supporters, most notable of which the Khorasani military elite. As expected so, al-Mahdi spent much of his life in the palace, in luxury and isolation, 
Slowly, Bauer was being accumulated by his secretaries and Ballas' intrigue drove a lot of the major decisions. One family, the Barmakids, originally guardians of a great Buddhist shrine in modern Afghanistan, dominated the administration. Their head became the tutor to al-Mahdi's son, future caliph Harun al-Rashid, and for extended periods of time, the family ran the caliphate in all but name. Rivaling them so and forming another center of power was the equivalent of the Byzantine eunuchs, Bala's servants, specifically the office of al-Hajib. Al-Hajib was the official who controlled access to the caliph, so eventually its holder accumulated a lot of power. Those Bala servants were almost always non-Arab freed slaves who grew up in the palace with very little loyalty or concern to a larger family or a tribe. As time went on, tensions between the palace servants, bureaucrats, and the army would heighten, and when al-Mahdi dies, the tension would blossom into a full civil war, with one of the sons supported by the military and the other by the civil servants. But more on that next week. In Egypt, unlike his father, al-Mahdi's appointment were problematic. For the most part, his administrators who were sent there were greedy vultures who eventually sparked another major rebellion led by none other than the powerful Arab families in Fustad itself. The Seventh Rebellion, under al-Mahdi, had very little Christian participation. Bob John, as we will get to next week, was very keen on avoiding trouble. It was led by one Dahya ibn Mus'ab, a distant relative of the Umayyads, who declared himself caliph in Upper Egypt and attracted a lot of the Arabs behind him, who saw it as an opportunity for a tax relief. The governor's response was slow and feeble, leading the caliph to remove him and appoint a no-nonsense official who previously governed the most turbulent parts of Iraq. The official Musa ibn Mus'ab came to Egypt and immediately responded to the rebels who hoped for tax relief by doubling down on that tax policy and imposing new taxes on merchants and owners of riding animals. The settled Arabs in the Delta and the seasonal soldiers in Fustat bought away their tribal rivalries and by now the ancient Qiyasi and Yemeni feuds, and determined that Musa had to go. The garrison leaders in Fustat made a secret arrangement with the rebels to abandon the governor in the middle of battle. As such, in April 784 AD, Musa led an army that planned to betray him.
when he met the rebels in battle, he was abandoned and killed, giving rise to another significant historical marker in the history of Egypt. For the first time, Arabs in Egypt identified more based on where they lived, Egypt, and those who lived with them in the same region than what tribe they belonged to in their ancestral homeland. In a sense, between this rebellion and the one that we started this episode with, the transformation of the Arabic identity in Egypt was complete. They too have become Egyptians. Thank you for listening, farewell and until next time.